We're in the book of Ruth again today for what I think will be the uh, penultimate message in this uh, relatively short series, but I want to take you into the final chapter of this book, and uh, the book of Ruth is the eighth book in the Bible. If you have a physical Bible in your hands, turn to flick through Joshua, Judges, and then it's a small book after the book of Judges. It's only about three or four pages long. I want to just um, remind you of what's happening at this particular moment in the story. This young widow named Ruth has um, made an approach to a man named Boaz, who is uh, a kind of related in a distant way as a kind of kinsman redeemer, someone who could marry her and has a kind of right of redemption to marry her in order to produce offspring for her dead husband, which was the custom at the time. It's a phenomenon called a leverate marriage, which as far as I'm aware, doesn't exist in, in culture anymore anywhere, but was certainly practiced in the Middle East at the time, and is, there's a number of instances of it in the Scriptures, in the Bible. And so Ruth has made an approach to Boaz, and Boaz leapt at the opportunity. But there is one fly in the ointment, which is that he has another relative, a cousin of sorts, who is a, a nearer kinsman redeemer, in that he has a kind of first right of refusal to purchase the land um, belonging to the mother-in-law Naomi and to marry the daughter-in-law Ruth. And this is where we pick up the story. Boaz has determined. I'm going to find out the answer tomorrow. He is very keen to resolve this immediately. And so we'll read the, the, the bulk of the last chapter of the book of Ruth, picking up from Ruth chapter 4 verse 1. It says, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So there he is, sat at the city gate, and the other man, the relative who has the first right of refusal, is walking by. So so Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. What Boaz is doing here is that most of the the business at the time was conducted at the gates of the city. They had no town hall. They had no courts of law. They had no um, sort of central um, square area in the city. They had the city gate. That's where the business dealings all took place, and they had to take place before witnesses, hence these 10 men who he has summoned to sit down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. 
Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Marlam, the three dead men who died at the beginning of the story, the husband of Naomi and her two sons. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Marlon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. They're the the mothers of the, t- the, the 12 patriarchs, the wives of Jacob. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem, which was their town in which they lived. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring of the Lord that he will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Now, Whenever we are reading the Bible, and particularly as we're delving into the Old Testament stories like this, one of the great questions that um, is fascinating to dwell upon is how how can it be possible that a 3,000-year-old story, and a story about the kind of incidences and day-to-day life of a few individuals um, like this, how can it have any relevance to us today? And we're very aware, we're acutely aware, aren't we? living in the 21st century, of all the distance between us and them. And I mean particularly the cultural and societal distance that's grown up over those intervening years. So that we've had the the infamous incident with Ruth uncovering Boaz's feet and how that is lost to us in terms of the symbolism of it, but somehow it was interpreted as a kind of proposal and he certainly um, received it in that way. And now we have something else strange going on here in this kind of, these dealings taking place at the city gate, one man giving another man his shoe, and um, all the strangeness of life in Bethlehem 3,000 3, years ago. And there's a sense in which some of this is lost to us, some of this was lost even to the readers when it was being written, because the author has to explain some of it as he's going along. Things change over the centuries, don't they? At the same time, however... It has been extraordinary to me in studying this book in depth, as I've so often experienced as I've delved into sections of, of the Bible you know, for a preaching series or other reason, to see the ways in which the, the work of God becomes more and more clear and evident to us, how his character shines through, how his purposes are consistent, and how the God who we worship never changes. And one of the things you have to wrestle with is, well, how is that possible? How can it be possible that we can read a story like this and learn eternal truths through it? And in particular, what I find fascinating about this little book is the way in which it so portrays to us elements of the gospel that Christians believe. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ who has redeemed his bride, the church, in the way that Boaz redeemed his bride, Ruth, in order to give us, the church, a place and a standing and an eternal security with him. How can that be possible? And the way that I understand it is like this, that God, in all of his works, he's like an artist. And artists have a particular way of their unique interests and style and signature coming through in all of their work. And uh, I'll give you a couple of illustrations just to 
to flesh this out a little bit. Um, a few years ago, I um, invested in a new amplifier to go with my sound system in my living room. I appreciate good music, and I was sitting on the sofa having just made this purchase and was flicking through some of my favorite tracks, just absorbing the sound and enjoying the music. And my wife is sat next to me getting bored. And at, typically what my wife likes to do when she's getting bored is she likes to turn everything into a game or a competition. You ever find yourself in a competition with C, Lord have mercy on you. She's a very competitive person. So she's turned this into a game. She, started, she grabbed the phone off me. She started flicking through Spotify, selecting uh, film soundtracks in order for me to, to identify the film and ideally also the composer. Um, Great fun at the Haslam House on a Saturday night. And um, as I was going through, I was scoring high. I was in the 90% mark of getting accuracy here in terms of matching the soundtrack and the film. And it's true, some have described me as a prodigy. You know, I don't like to uh, comment on these things. But in any case, I was doing well. And wherever I was getting them wrong, typically what was going on was that I was choosing the wrong film, but it was the same, the right composer. So, you know, you can muddle up the films that Hans Zimmer or John Barry composed for. And the reason being, of course, that music tends to bear the mark of its creator. You can sometimes hear just a few bars of a new piece of music you've never heard before, and you know who the conductor or the author or the, the um, songwriter was because of their unique style coming through. And the same is true in terms of works of art. I'm a total Philistine when it comes to um, art. I have a very little knowledge or appreciation of art, but I thought I would approach one of our, one of our artists in Grace, a guy called Brett, who's usually here doing the sound desk in the evening service. Brett is a professional artist and a wonderful thinker and has uh, degrees in theology as well. And we just get along, and I thought, listen, mate, take me to the, to the uh, National Gallery and show me around. And so we went, we, we charted all the, way, all the way through from the kind of medieval art, and he's explaining it as we went, all the way right through to the modern era. And we walked into the room where William Turner's great paintings are fixed on the wall. And honestly, I was taken aback at the beauty, his use of color, his technique with the brush. I can't explain these things to you, but they looked good to me. They're very pretty pictures. And there was a unique style about them, so much so that I thought, listen, I want to see more of this guy's work. And a few months later, I went to the Tate Britain, which is on, on the North Bank. And as I walked in there and navigated my way around the rooms, it was evident to me the second I walked into the room that housed a number of his paintings because his unique style is so, is so unique to him. And this is how artists work. It's true in music. It's true in, in art. It's true in, in stories. It's true in nature when we think about God's creation. One of the things that you notice, in fact, one of the, the, the arguments that's been brought against the notion of a creator is how much similarity there are between one creature and another. And they say, well, this obviously means that we're all from common ancestors. Or it can mean that they have a common creator whose mind runs in certain ways and whose order is fixed into the world that he created. And so if you begin to think of the Bible this way, Think of the Bible and the, the, the narratives and the stories that are weaved together in its pages. One thing you have to understand about Scripture is the way in which God, as the author of all things, has created resonances and themes and echoes in all of the little stories that preach to us about the great grand story of what he's accomplishing in the world. If the whole the Bible is about 
is really about Jesus. He's the center of it all. And about his, his pursuit of his bride, the church. If that's the great theme of Scripture, rescuing us from our sin, rescuing us from our squalor and wretchedness by his death upon the cross, redeeming us to belong to him so that we'll one day rise and be with him eternally. If that's the great story of Scripture, you see elements of this and echoes of this in all of the smaller stories that are all the way through the Bible so that if you read with eyes open and a mind that's attentive, you'll notice that this is one great artistic hand that has been at work in and behind everything that's taken place in the history of the world. And so you read the sacrificial narratives in the Old Testament law, and they preach to us of the gospel of the Son of God who would have to die for the sins of his people. Or you read the judgment stories of overthrow and God judging people for their sin, and it preaches to us of a final day of judgment. Or you read about the wedding stories like this one, and it preaches to us of the final wedding that will take place at the end of history when God's people will be joined with God's Son eternally. And we could go on all day talking about these resonances, and to me that's in many ways the most interesting aspect of reading the Bible, what edifies me the most and does me the most good, just seeing the wisdom and grand plan of our almighty God. How nothing is by accident. And so when I come to a story like this, sometimes there are very practical takeaways. We can think about, as we have been doing over recent weeks, suffering and, and love and romance and all these kinds of things. But sometimes we just have to step back and take in the scene. And see the artistry of the creator as he's been at work in and through this extraordinary story. And what I want to do this evening is to show you five ways in which we see the echoes of the gospel that we as Christians believe that's the heart of our faith weaved into this, this little story so that you could even call this the gospel of Ruth. So let me show you what those things are. The first is when we think about the signature work of the living God, the first is how God draws near to the brokenhearted. And the book has opened, hasn't it, with unspeakable tragedy and unbearable loss when Naomi and Ruth lost their husbands. All the men in this family die. And we meet them in their dejection. We meet them in their, in their misery and their grief and their lament. Such overwhelming grief that Naomi has begun to complain to everyone around her. Do you remember how she said, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And in the space of a few short pages, if there's one thing that the book is about, it's about how God comes into their lives and begins to reveal his loving kindness to them in a fresh way so that the hopelessness gives way to hope so that despair gives way to joy and life and festivity, and the widowhood becomes marriage. The happiness of knowing marriage and childbirth again in this broken family. And one thing I want you to see, this is, might sound to you like a somewhat superficial observation, but listen, this is the heart of our faith. The God we believe in is a God who 
consistently reveals himself to us as the God of the brokenhearted. It's there, and I'll read you a number of passages which just flesh this out in Psalm 34. It says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. If you've ever been brokenhearted or felt your soul to be crushed, it is in that moment that perhaps you'll most be open to the work of God in a new way to revive and renew you. When Jesus came in his mission to earth, one of the first moments in his ministry is recorded for us when he stood up in the synagogue in his hometown where he'd grown up. And he pulled out the scroll of Isaiah. Remember, each biblical book was its own separate scroll, handwritten, beautiful and expensive. And he unrolled it and manually wound the thing like an old cassette tape until he found the place in which these verses were written that in some ways were the manifesto of the ministry that he was about to embark upon. The verses in Isaiah 61 that say that the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, the Holy Spirit is upon me, Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus has come for broken people. He's come to mend the hearts of those who are in the depths of despair, who are the brokenhearted, who are the captives, who are in prison, who are bound. And when Jesus was preaching on the hillside in his great Sermon on the Mount, in which he kind of laid out his vision of the kingdom. Do you remember how he said those statements, blessed are these people and blessed are those people. These statements are called the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In other words, there is something about your suffering that puts you in the uniquely open place where the work of God can be felt and seen in your life in a new and fresh way. Why is that? Why is it that God is particularly near to the brokenhearted? Why is it that we see his work more evidently in our lives when we're in pain? And I think the answer is as much to do with us as anything else. It seems to me that the Bible shows us through story after story, that the better our lives are going very often, the more we are closed to the work of God, that we, we then become less prayerful. Or perhaps if you're not a believer at all, you, you do not feel your need for God. And if there's one thing that in my mind explains the spiritual tenor and atmosphere of the Western world, it is that, that the wealthier we become, the less we see our dire spiritual need. Which is why Jesus put it elsewhere in Luke's Gospel. He said, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. It's not that Jesus had anything against the rich, those who were full, who had full stomachs, who laughed, who were joyful. It wasn't that he had anything against them. It's rather that he was putting his finger on a spiritual reality, an almost spiritual law within humans, which is that when your life is going well, you forget your need for God. And had things been normal, you know, had their lives had just proceeded as they would have wished, as Naomi and Ruth would have wished, that their husbands had remained alive, nothing bad would have happened to them, we would never have seen the work of God break in in the extraordinary and profound ways in which it did. But somehow, in the brokenness and the tragedy, we're seeing how God draws near to us. If you find yourself in a place where you feel depressed, that is when God is going to come to you. 
when you feel that you are rejected, then you may cry out to him. When you feel totally alone, then you may open your life up to the love that only he can give to you. When you feel hopeless, you want the hope that only God can give you, an eternal hope. Whatever suffering we may find ourselves at in life, whether now or from some future season in your, in your journey, understand this, that that will provide a unique opportunity for God to bring about profound spiritual renewal in your life. I will warn you, though, Suffering can lead in in two directions. It can also cause us, as much as it might lead us to open our lives up to God, for some it leads the other way, that in blaming God and anger against him, we run away from him. And I think for Naomi, she was in the balance there in that first chapter when she's become bitter. But thankfully, her life was then opened up to the kindness of God. And so I would put it like this, that the only thing worse then experiencing suffering in life is never experiencing suffering in life. For the reason that you may well never know the joy of crying out to God and seeing him move in on your situation in a profound way. God draws near to the brokenhearted. The book of Ruth is about that. Here's a second thing. God goes after the outsider. He loves and has a preference for the outsider. Now, this comes through in the way that Boaz conducts himself towards Ruth. His real overwhelming desire that she should be his wife. And when we have read this chapter, we've seen his tactics in approaching this situation. Here he is in a slightly awkward position of loving this woman and wanting to marry her, but knowing that between him and her stands another man who has first right of refusal to marry her and continue the family line, as was the practice. And so Boaz engages in an interesting approach. The first verse of the chapter tells us how he went up to the gate, and uh, he sat down, and the other guy came by, and he called a meeting right there and then. He was not messing about. He was like, sit down, mate, we're going to talk. And then he summons all the elders and calls them all in together. And so Boaz immediately creates this situation in which a decision has to be reached that day and puts the pressure on this other man who was just going about his normal day, did not know that he was about to be told he had to choose whether he was going to marry someone or not. And I know if, if I did that to any of you guys here, you would probably go white and faint. And so something like that seems to happen to this man here, Boaz creates a precious scenario in which a decision has to be made. And then he takes a careful approach. The first thing he does is he presents to him all the the opportunity. He says, listen, our cousin Naomi has land that belonged to her dead husband, and it is upon you to redeem this land in order to, um, as was the custom. And so the man says, great, I'll buy the land. I'll give Naomi the cash. That sounds good. And then Boaz slips in the fine print. He says, oh, by the way, when you buy the land, you also have to marry Ruth and bear children for the dead. And the reason why Boaz takes this approach is because he knows the mind of this other man and the mind of the normal men in the village was that they would not have seen Ruth as an opportunity, but rather as a liability. Why is that? Well, because she was a Moabite. She's foreign. She does not belong to their community. And because she's a widow, she's a widow to a dead man, and whoever married her had the duty of producing offspring for the dead. That was the custom. In other words, she's not someone that any 
other man in the village would have wanted. And yet she's the very one who Boaz desires with all of his heart. He wants her. He desires her, the rejected one, the outsider, the foreigner. He's after her. And it seems to me that this has an extraordinary resonance with the gospel that we believe. Why does God call you? It's not because you are lovely. It's not because you are worthy. It's not because you have a right to be in his household or at his table. The Bible tells us relentlessly again and again just how much the opposite is true of us. That we are not lovely. That we are not worthy. That our status is as wretched sinners. And yet that we are the desire of Christ's heart. That he comes in pursuit of us to win the beloved to himself. And this is the thing that Jesus, Jesus um, contemporaries couldn't really get their heads around. The message of God's love and his pursuit of the outsider. Israel at the time was the insider kingdom, and Jesus was in, in a sense of rebell- in rebellion against that. So much so that they, when they come to crucify him, we're told in the book of Hebrews that they crucified him in a very symbolic way outside of the city of Jerusalem. It tells us that he suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. In other words, Jesus died as the ultimate outsider for the reason that he came to win outsiders to himself. And then the Hebrews tells us this, Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. In other words, it's baked into Christian identity right from the moment you come to know Jesus and thereon. That our identity is that we are an outsider people. That we belong with Christ outside the gate. And if you've ever felt that you're an outsider, there's some sense in which you feel you don't belong, then you're someone Christ is coming in pursuit of. And this is what we see so wonderfully in the book of Ruth, how Boaz upends all expectation around what would be a fitting marriage for him and goes after this woman, just as Christ has come after us. God goes after the outsider. The third thing I see here that speaks to me of the gospel is the way in which God turns the barren into a fruitfulness and fruitful womb. Now, this is something that you see in so many stories in the Bible. I just remind you of a few of them how it just keeps recurring again and again through Scripture. When God first spoke to Abraham, said, I'll make you the father of many nations, he was an old man and he's married to a childless woman called Sarah. And yet God gives her in her old age the son Isaac. And then as you move through the pages of Scripture, you encounter Leah and Rachel, who are mentioned in our story here. And how Rachel, the younger sister, is childless, and then God gives her children. And together they become mothers to the the patriarchs. Later on, we encounter Hannah at the temple gates, weeping and praying and fasting because she's childless. And then God gives her the son Samuel, who becomes one of the most important prophets in Israel's history. Much later on, we encounter uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is a barren woman. And then God promises, I'm going to give you a child. And they she gives birth to John the Baptist and one of the most, the, the most significant prophet in the New Testament apart from Jesus Christ. 
for some reason, God has this, this, this you know, it's, it's, it's not a coincidence. This is a pattern, isn't it? The way in which time and time again, God brings significant birth through these barren women. And he's doing it again here with Ruth. She's, her husband has died and she's childless at this stage. And then Boaz comes in as the kinsman redeemer to marry her and they conceive a son. And he asks, why is that? Why is that a thing? Why is there such a prominent theme? And I've not even mentioned to you all the stories in which this is true in Scripture. But why is this a thing? And I think I can answer that at a couple of levels. One level is just because it speaks to us of the, the compassion of the Lord towards individuals in their unique plight. And here he is moving near to this woman, this specific woman in her situation. But of course, I think it's more than that. I think it's, there's so much symbolism here of the gospel promise itself weaved into and spoken through this reality of God alone being the one who can bring this kind of fruitfulness. And this is the way the Bible story unfolds, that God turns Abraham into a multitude of nations of which we now are a part if we are believers in Christ. And how when Christ came, he left, as it were, a, a kind of what looked like on the surface of things, a barren people, a small remnant to be his followers. And yet he, he rested on the promise of the fruitfulness of the church that would expand and grow through multiplication of spiritual children to fill the whole earth. And he was meditating. Christ would have meditated on promises like this one in Isaiah 54, which speaks symbolically of this theme of barrenness and then childbirth. In Isaiah 54, it says this, Sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married says the Lord enlarge the place of your tent let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out in other words move house get a bigger home do not hold back lengthen your cords strengthen your stakes for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities when Isaiah was writing this and God was speaking this promise this is not a promise about any one specific woman. This is a promise spoken to the people of God, symbolized as a woman who will have so many children that God's people will fill the earth. And therefore, when you're reading stories like this one of God's work in the life of an individual woman like this who was childless and then God blessing her womb and giving her a son, you have to understand that that's layered on to the whole story of the scriptures in which God intended to fill the earth with his great family, the people of God that is the church. And we are well on our way, friends, towards that being fulfilled and accomplished. The words of Isaiah that were a mere dream when they were spoken are now visible before our eyes. There's no tent large enough to contain this family and here it is in symbolic and, and uh, typological form here in the book of Ruth. God makes the barren fruitful. And our destiny, as it said in Revelation 7, is that we will become a multitude greater than anyone could number worshiping before the Lamb and crying out worthy. Salvation belongs to our God. Let me show you a fourth thing. God turns a bastard people into royalty. Now this is, for me, one of the most fascinating moments in the book. What happens here in verse 12, where the villagers are all gathered round Boaz and Ruth when this deal has been done and this wedding announced, 
And they begin to speak their blessings over this marriage. And they say, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. In other words, give her children out of her barrenness who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And here's the key words. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now, it's the kind of line which when you're doing your Bible reading plan and working through the scriptures chapter by chapter throughout the year, you read and give no no thought to. You just read it and then immediately dismiss it. It goes straight out the back of your mind. You take no notice of it. But actually, this is an extraordinary line that is worthy of mining. And let me just explain to you what's going on here. Boaz and Ruth are engaging in this practice called levirate marriage, as I've explained to you. That Boaz is going to marry her in order to bear children for her dead husband, Marlon, and therefore continue the family name. Back in the book of Genesis is one of the first instances of this happening, but it happens in a rather twisted way. Judah, one of the 12 patriarchs of Israel, has three sons. The first son marries this woman, Tamar, He dies with no children. The second one marries this woman, Tamar, in levirate marriage, the right practice. He also dies. And at this point, Judah is thinking, this woman's no good. Two two down, one to go. And he holds back and he thinks, I'm not going to give my third son to her as was her right, as was the custom. And he decides not to bother. She grows bitter and angry in her soul, and she comes up with this kind of cunning plan to to have children. And what she does is she hides by the roadside as a prostitute, pretending to be a prostitute with a veil and in disguise. And Judah, as he's traveling along, decides to pay for her services. And of course, you know, you know everything's going wrong at this point because of the, the sordid way in which he's conducting himself. But he sleeps with her, doesn't know it's his, his daughter-in-law. Much later, it turns out she's become pregnant. And he shocked, you know, is shocked and horrified that his daughter-in-law became pregnant by some unknown man. And he calls down justice upon her, at which point she demonstrates that it was him who slept with her all along, calls out his hypocrisy in the twisted way in which he's conducted himself towards her, not only in that instance, but also in withholding his son from her, as was her right to marry. She gives birth to twins, illegitimate twins, bastard sons, the firstborn of whom is called Perez. And the extraordinary turn of events is this, that this illegitimate son becomes the most prominent of all of Judah's heirs, the one who is most mentioned throughout the Old Testament. So that the bastard line inherits the promises most prominently from Judah. And not only that, there's, there's more layers to this. Perez, it seems, also may well have been the ancestor of this entire village in Bethlehem. He's actually named at the end of this chapter as being a direct ancestor to Boaz himself. But it's also, the commentators believe, it's also the case that the reason why they were called the Ephrathites is because Perez's great-granddaughter was called Ephrath. 
So the whole village is named after this line. They are the Perizzites, you could describe them as. So when they're saying to Boaz, may your house be like the house of Perez, there's a deep meaning to them as a village because they were the the bastard people born out of this illegitimate um, sexual encounter who are now in the family line and part of the people of God and the main inheritors of Judah's Judah's, um, sort of lineage and, and the lineage of grace that came through him. And there's more to it than that. Not only is that also the case, but this also becomes the royal line. Back in the book of Genesis, when God, when prophetic um, sort of announcements were being made over the 12 sons, the 12 heads of the tribes of Israel, and Judah was among them, it was said of Judah that out of his line, royalty would come. And here we are many, many years later, and Boaz becomes the great-grandfather to David, the king, who is the great 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 plus grandfather to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So that out of this bastard line, the Perez being born illegitimately to the father Judah, God says, that's the line I want to bless. That's the line that will become the royal line. And everything about that speaks to you about the kind of God that we love and serve. Christian identity is that we identify with Perez. We're the illegitimate heirs. We're the outsiders. We're the ones who had no right to be part of this family that is God's people. And yet God calls us his sons. He calls us heirs. He calls us co-heirs with Christ. And this is one of the things that the New Testament keeps saying again and again. For example, in Galatians 3, where it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You who had no place in the family of Abraham, who were not his legitimate children, now you have become co-heirs with Christ and therefore part of the royal line. And here it is in the book of Ruth. The upside down way in which God loves to work and surprise everybody. In that the Perizzites become the family out of which the royalty emerges via this marriage of Boaz to Ruth the Moabite. And this extraordinary story. Only God could bring these things around. Let me show you one last thing that speaks to me about the gospel in this story. It is the way in which God blesses the selfless redeemer with a name that lasts. And here's what I mean. When Boaz made the decision to marry this woman Ruth, he was in a sense taking the risk in which his own inheritance and family name was buried and dead. That was the risk that he was entering into. He says that I will, today he says also in verse 10, that Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Marlon, I bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. Your witnesses this day. So Boaz takes this ultimate selfless act in a culture and a society in which your name is everything and in which bearing offspring who perpetuate your name is the ultimate accomplishment in life. He says, I will die to myself and I will instead carry on the name of the dead. And this is, of course, why 
The other redeemer says, oh no, I, I cannot risk losing my name and my inheritance by doing another man's job for him, the dead man. And he backs out and bows out of the responsibility. But Boaz steps up. And yet, when the people speak to him, they're sensitive to the sacrifice and the selflessness of Boaz's actions here in this story. They're sensitive to it, which is why they speak this blessing over him. And they say, may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. In other words, let your name last. Let it perpetuate. Let your name be famous. And so it is that 3,000 years later, we're reading a story. And whose name do we know here? It's not the, the redeemer who tried to protect his name and then disappeared as a nameless character out of the book. But it's Boaz who died to himself in perpetuating the name of the dead, but whose name is now even now in our minds and has lasted through the millennia. And not only that, but who finds himself in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ in the first chapter of Matthew's gospel, perhaps the most read book in all of history and the most read chapter. It makes your head spin, doesn't it? The wisdom and the plan and the goodness of God and all these things. And it reminds me, of course, of how the Lord has dealt with his greater son, our greater Boaz, Jesus Christ himself. How it is that he, in this Boaz-like way, stepped into our world to redeem us through an act of selflessness and self-denial and humbling. And we're told in the letter to the Philippians how it was that he, though he was in the form of God, in other words, speaking of his sonship and his pre-existence before the formation of the world, how he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So Jesus stepped down to become a servant. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. He's saying further still by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Just like Boaz died to his rights, Christ died to his rights. Took the place of a servant went further down to the place of the cross in order to redeem his bride, the church, just as Boaz redeemed Ruth. And then we're told that therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that even as the Roman soldiers were spitting upon him and mocking him as a seemingly nameless criminal dying on the cross, it is the name of Jesus Christ that has abided through the generations and which will be the name above every name for all history. He's given him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so it is that you and I have gathered together here today to sing the name of Jesus, our humble Savior, our selfless Savior and Redeemer. And there it is in the book of Ruth, the wisdom and the plan of God to work in such a way. Friends, I want to bring this to a close and just say, I think there are two ways in which the Lord would call us to react to the extraordinary vista of this account and the way in which it displays to us the gospel 
in a beautiful little narrative. The first way is to respond in humble gratitude, understanding that we in this storyline are Ruth. We're the broken-hearted ones, the rejected ones, the outsiders. We're the bastard people who God comes in to give dignity by his redemptive work in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. We respond in humble gratitude. And the other way in which we respond is in reverent awe at our Savior, the greater Boaz, the Redeemer above all Redeemers, who has bled and died to purchase your life, to make you his own, to redeem you from the slavery to sin that governed and ruled your life, and to make you his very own, to make you his bride, the church. And now we join with the saints through all history and across the world to sing, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. To honor him as our Savior and to love him as our Redeemer.